Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Hagliano, who is calling in remotely again from sunny Virginia. How are things in Virginia, Frank? They are great, David. Thank you very much. Um, yes, and I'm, I've got to confess, I'm happy not to be in the UK right now, given ah, the uh, given current very... state of public mourning. Yes, to be sure. Um, your, your grocery stores will be open on Monday. Right. Um, earlier this week, Americans, at least some of them, celebrated Constitution Day, uh, a, day uh, a holiday that is probably not as celebrated as maybe it could be, uh, to, to celebrate the Constitution and all the blessings it offers. Uh, but last week, Frank, you mentioned a, an article that, that discusses the possibility of another constitutional convention. Do we need a new constitution, whether that's a, a great idea or a huge mistake? So this week, we thought we'd talk about, about the constitution, its origins, and whether a new constitutional convention would uh, is the road to salvation or the road to something else. Um, yeah, I mean, there was an article that appeared in, uh, on September 4th in the New York Times, uh, with that, which I mentioned last week in passing, with the um, headline, a second constitutional convention, some Republicans want to force one. And it was an interesting article. Uh, it basically mentioned the fact that there's a movement in some of the states where Republicans control the state legislatures uh, to call for a new constitutional convention. And the counter view was presented in this, in this article by former Wisconsin Senator Russ Feingold, um, who saw this as a grave danger to the current constitution, sees this as a grave danger to the cu current constitution. The state legislators um, in question in their various states are uh, have kind of fastened onto the language of Article 5 of the Constitution, uh, which says in part that Congress, quote, on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states shall call a convention for proposing amendments, that is, amendments to the Constitution. Uh, and so there, there's, it's not clear how many states have actually called for uh, such a convention, but they would need 34 um, and whether they've got that or not is 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 not clear, according to this article, because it's not entirely clear how the so-called several states would express their views. They have to yeah. write to the archivist of the United States, apparently. Um, but but this has got me thinking, and you and I have talked about this, I think, offline in the past as to both the history of constitutional change in the United States, but also uh, what what it might look like, or, what, or to put mm. another way, what we might want it to look like. But there, there have been instances of constitutional change. I mean, the creation of the Constitution itself uh, is an interesting example, and, and it kind of um, vindicates former Senator Feingold's view, because the, as some of our listeners will probably know, the so-called Constitutional Convention, which met in the summer of 1787, sometimes called the Federal Convention as well, uh, ostensibly met to discuss amendments to the Articles of Confederation, which was which were then the Constitution of the United States. And uh, instead of discussing amendments to the to the Articles of Confederation, they proposed an entirely new constitution. Which will be familiar to many, uh, many of our listeners is the one we've, we've got today with significant changes uh, since then. But but um, and, and so what happened at the Constitutional Convention, Convention in 1787 is those men who met in Philadelphia 
exceeded their brief and proposed an entire, they didn't propose amendments to the Articles of Confederation. They proposed to replace the Articles they, of they Confederation. They proposed one really big amendment. Yeah. And Feingold is, is fearful that if another constitutional convention is held, particularly because this movement seems to have its origin among uh, particularly um, uh, enthusiastic and conservative uh, GOP legislatures, legislators in, in particular states that might want to really gut the federal government. He's afraid that a new constitutional convention would do exactly what the first one did and, and propose a wholesale replacement to the existing constitution. Um, perhaps he's right about it to, to have that fear. I mean, there is historic precedent for this, but uh, that that's... Uh, there's an important historic precedent for whether that would be the outcome or not. I, you know, who, who could tell? We do have an instance, of course, there is an instance that you know a lot about in the, in yeah. the history of the United States when a bunch of states got together and drafted a new national constitution. I'm yes. using national uh, in, in uh, uh, advisedly, but uh, yes. uh, when the Confederate States of America drafted a constitution, what happened then? Uh, so they actually have two constitutions. They have a provisional constitution. They, they draft very quickly uh, in February of 1861, and then a, a fuller draft that, that they uh, do the next month, essentially. Um, what the Confederacy does when they write their constitution is they start with the U.S. Constitution as a template. And if you read the two documents side by side, you'll see lots of the language is the same, the, the structure is the same, the mechanics of it are the same, but they made some interesting changes to it. Um, the most uh, obvious ones of these, they explicitly reference slavery. Slavery in the federal constitution is always sort of mentioned in, in shadowy language or elusive language. The, Confederate Constitution doesn't do that. And they, they, they talk about slavery as, as a slavery. Um, they're fairly explicit uh, that the states remain sovereign in the Confederate Constitution. Um, you know, instead of saying, you know, we the people of the United States, they say, you know, we the representatives of these states, which remain sovereign, completely separate from the national government. So the state sovereignty issue is pretty explicit. Uh, the Confederate president has a six-year term and can't get reelected. That's why Jefferson Davis didn't have to run for re-election. Um, and there's some pretty restrict, uh, explicit restrictions on internal improvements and taxation. Um, but other than that, they, they, they're taking the original document and modifying you know, bits and pieces of it. But leaving aside the, the, the content of it, which yes. is what historians tend to give the most attention to, I'm interested in the process because that's oh, what we're really talking about today. Yeah, so, 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 how did when, when states seceded from the uh, from the union? Yes. And join, did they apply to join the Confederacy? Did they have to approve the Constitution to get into the Confederacy? What was that? So, what so happened? They get this, you know, this preliminary government that is uh, established in Montgomery. Um, in you know, there's this weird window uh, between when. Lincoln is elected and then states start to secede starting with South Carolina in December of, uh, of 1860 and then a number of other states in January and February of 1861. Lincoln is not inaugurated until March. So there's this time in which, you know, lots of things are happening very, very quickly. So they pull together this, this preliminary 
convention in Montgomery where they established the Confederacy and established a sort of preliminary constitution. Um, and then they subsequently become a government and this, the Confederate Congress uh, drafts the, the revised constitution pretty shortly thereafter. It is then this sort of second Confederate constitution, sort of the full one that is ratified by Confederate states. Uh, and it's drafted in early 1861, but it's not ratified until February of 1862. And, and then it's, and it's in effect until the end of the war, obviously. And was there a threshold for ratification as there was? Yes, it was five states, I think was the threshold for ratification. Um, because obviously when they're drafting it, the Upper South hasn't left the Union yet because that doesn't happen until after Fort Sumter. Right. So, so, but when, when, Upper South states seceded from the Union. Did they have to give kind of provisional support to the Confederate Constitution? Yeah, they they all then they, the the state legislatures ratified the Confederate right. Constitution. But so they didn't hold separate ratifying conventions, though, no. as occurred in seventeen eighty seven and eighty eight. No, they got other things going on that keeps them a bit busy. Sure, sure, sure. Um, um, but I think that's an example of somebody. You know, in their minds, they are create. You know having a second constitutional convention. They see themselves as inheritors of, you know, the, the revolutionary generations the, 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 of the revolution itself, you know, but they say they're making changes that they thought were, you know, a consequence of mistakes made in the, uh, the revolution. You know, if you look at what Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy says uh, at the same time, they're drafting this, uh, Constitution, the, the Confederate Constitution, he says, that, you know, the cornerstone of our new Confederacy is slavery and white supremacy. You know, the old Constitution was based on this faulty premise that, you know, uh, there was some equality of people, and, and he said that's nonsense. We're building a, a very different kind of government, even if it's built on similar structures. So they, you know, keep uh, federal jurisprudence, for instance. So the Confederate Supreme Court still abides by all the decisions that come before it from the Marshall Cart and what have you. Um, you know, so that's a case where, you know, they are drafting a new constitution, but they are using the U.S. Constitution very much as its template. So, I mean, I've never thought of this before. Did the Confederacy have, have I mean, I realized there was a war on, so they had, other, as you said, other concerns. Sure. But did, did, they, did they set up a working judiciary? Did it actually operate during the during yes. the war, yeah, no, they they had it. They had a they had all the things. Um, they had a postal service. They had a judiciary. They had Congress. Um, you know, and and they set up. You know, obviously, part of the advantage of for them of modeling on the U.S. Constitution is a lot of these structures were in place, right? You know, so like when they set up the postal service, they just hired all the postal employees that had been in the Confederacy uh, that were you know from the United States. We actually have postal documents where they cross out United and they write Confederate on right, the top. Right, right, right. Um, so uh, I think that was, I think they recognized the advantage of, and they liked the structure of the federal government, except for these very explicit policy choices about slavery. Um, well, and this is, this is, that's a good example. I mean, I think that's instructive because I think if we had another constitutional convention, the danger of a wholesale replacement of the constitution in the way that happened in 1787, I think is unlikely because of the uh, affection, the connection that, that many Americans feel to the Constitution, or at least 
the Constitution as they imagine it to be would make it very difficult to change wholesale. I don't think it would be completely replaced. I do think it would be amended. But, you know, again, what do I know? Now, well, um, now, what was so bad, Frank, about the Articles of Confederation that 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 George Washington and his buddies decided to in a, a new thing? Well, basic, I mean, the federal government was incredibly weak. Um, it operated basically as Congress had, as the Continental Congress had during the War of Independence. Uh, most crucially, the federal government had no, um, had no authority to tax. So it, 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 the states were much, much more powerful under the Articles of Confederation than they would be under the new federal constitution as uh, rat- uh, written in 1787 and, and ratified in 1788. And there were uh, ongoing disputes between and among the states that seemed to be getting worse. I mean, this is very much the Federalist perspective I'm giving you on this. Yes. Um, and, and that the, the, the Union or the, the, the Confederation was in danger of collapse because it faced very strong uh, enemies abroad, Britain, France, Spain, um, and, and also had uh, faced internal dangers as they saw them from enslaved people or indigenous people, and that the, the, the Union was not strong enough to defend itself and it was uh, it was uh, beset with backbiting and sniping between the states and the commercial policy and the economic policy was was a mess because the, there was no coherence to it. And because of all of these problems, it was necessary to create a stronger federal union. All right. Now, I'm going to ask you, Frank, to flip your voice now and say, OK, what 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 was the op- the, the anti-federals? What were they? What did they like about the existing government? Well, they liked what. That uh, they liked the most power resided in the states, and they could point to and say, "Well, okay, sure, we might face these external dangers, but you know, we we successfully uh, won a war of independence against a very strong imperial power uh, with, with with this system, and we we collaborate and cooperate on things that really matter, like foreign policy, uh, but but." You know, in the main, it's more democratic with a small D to have power exercised at the state level rather than surrendering it to the to the federal level. Hmm. And they're not wrong about that. They're not. And to some extent, again, the the people who want to reform the Constitution today are not necessarily wrong in saying Hmm. vesting power with the states is more democratic than having a strong federal Hmm. government. It's what the states want to do with that power and everything else. We know that this is not uncomplicated, but, you know, they, that that's their argument. You know, if it, you know, it, the system wasn't perfect, but it worked. Yeah. Well, one of the things that makes the federal constitution different than the Articles of Confederation, besides the, the greater authority it gives the federal government, is it's easier to amend. Yes. The Articles of Confederation no, require. No, no, no. They require unanimous. Sorry, you're right, saying. Yeah, yeah right, the, sorry. The, the new constitution is easier to yeah. amend. Apologies, you know, sorry. And, uh, no, I, I, I spoke poorly that, that, that you didn't understand. Anyway, you know, so the new constitution does have this sort of amendment mechanism, uh, which has been used at various points in time. And this is actually where the, the I guess, the call for a new constitutional convention comes from, is from Article 5, that, it, that gives a, a structure for um, amending the constitution. And I, I think most people don't know this, but I think it's worth sort of pointing out that the Constitution lays out two frameworks for amending the Constitution. The one that is the way that the Constitution has been amended, the times it has been amended, which is through Congress um, passing amendments and then sending them on to states for legis- uh, for ratification. 
And the second mechanism, which is the, the sort of fuzzier one, because it's never actually been used, uh, in which two thirds of the state legislatures can call for a convention for proposing amendments. Um, and what that would look like, I think none of us know. Uh, there was, have been some efforts to try to sort of explain or, or have a structure for what that looks like. Um, there was an effort by Sam Irvin, uh, the, the senator from North Carolina that many people may remember from the Watergate hearings. He tried to, to, to pass a bill to say like what that would look like. Uh, he tries this a couple times uh, and it actually passed the Senate but never made any through the House. Um, Orrin Hatch does the same thing where he tries to say, like, what would this look like if, if, if what framework would a new constitutional convention look like if states did this? Uh, but that also didn't go anywhere. So we don't really know what um, a convention looked like. And there's a debate, I think, among legal scholars about when it says they should call a convention for proposing amendments. Does that mean that states need to call for particular amendments or do they call for a convention that can propose anything it wants? And some uh, legal scholars say actually it means they can only address very specific issues or they can, once they open the can of worms, they can, this new convention can, can address any and everything. Which um, is the precedent that was set in 1787. Right. Um, and, you know, there have been, uh, the, the, this recent call I think is an important one. Um, but this isn't the first time people have called for a, a constitutional convention. Um, you know, there, there are three, several big waves of, of I think, uh, you know, precedent for this moment of people calling for conventions. There was a wave in the 19, early 1940s where several people were calling for a new convention. There was a, a very uh, popular book that was published, I think in 1943 by Alexander Haymeyer. Uh, who was a prominent lawyer at the time, and he wrote a book called A Time for Change. And the argument he makes there, and it's an argument that you find other people making in the early 1940s, is that the world's a very different place and the federal government's in a very different place in the aftermath of the, the New Deal and in the midst of the Second World War than it was in the late 18th century. And we need to have a government that reflects that. Um, Obviously that didn't go anywhere. Uh, there's another wave in the 1960s um, for a new constitutional convention. And this is in response to uh, uh, some Supreme Court decisions. And it's, uh, that also doesn't go anywhere. Uh, and there's uh, calls for one in the 1980s in response for people are calling for a, the, the, the sort of the state route for a convention for a balanced budget amendment. And actually a bunch of states did call for a new convention to deal with that specific issue. Uh, but I think this new one is different in a character in as much as, um, you know, they really are thinking about sort of wholesale changes or significant systematic changes. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. We've discussed some of the flaws in the constitution mm. and, and some of the ways in which the constitution is no longer fit for purpose. Um, is this movement in and of itself bad? I mean, Russ Feingold thinks it's bad, um, but but clearly there are there are aspects of the Constitution mm -hmm. that um, 
I'd like to see changed. I suspect you'd like to see changed. Sure. I suspect they're not the same ones that some of the people proposing for this convention uh, think should be changed, but that's the whole purpose of having a convention. And and I actually think this is a more positive step. We've heard, had a lot of rhetoric. I think a lot of it's overblown about impending civil war and stuff like this in the United States. I think a constitutional convention to try and hammer out mm. some of the uh, political differences and, and some of the constitutional, uh, the, the, the problems with the constitution that have manifested them themselves in this period of, of extreme political uh, difference is a positive. It could be a positive step. Why, it could, why is, is it a bad thing? I think you're right. It could be a positive step. I mean, if you look at, at other countries with written constitutions, which is most of them, you know, they update their constitutions periodically. Uh, they have constitutional conventions to address those changes. Um, you know, Chile, I think recently, for instance, had a new constitution yep. written, but they voted it down. Uh, in a popular referendum, I think, you know, that's a response to the fact that, you know, government structures should change as, as structures of power change and, and times change. And, and we live in a very different world than the, you know, guys who hung out in Philadelphia in 1787 uh, in, in any number of ways. Um, and, and having a government that reflects that is, is good. Um, you know, whether they would use, if there was a new convention, a the whether the delegates would use the Philadelphia Constitution as a model or not, or whether they should use Nelson model is, is, is an interesting question. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was asked this question, if, if there was a new constitutional convention, you know, sh how should they write it? Um, and in 2012, she said, no, that actually they should pick some other recent countries who have had constitutions and use those as a model instead. And she pointed to the new uh, South African uh, constitution, um, the Canadian uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms um, as potential models for a new constitution. Now, uh, whether any of those would be viable, um, you know, I don't know. Well, I, I, I think the attachment that many Americans have to the Constitution, as I said, as they imagine it to be, mm. not necessarily as it is, is such that it would be very difficult to replace it entirely. So so I, I, I actually think that this, for the purposes of this discussion, we should consider, mm. OK, how would you amend it rather than whole than replace it wholesale? Because I don't think I, 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 I don't think that that's a realistic possibility. I don't think any of this is likely to happen, but but I think I think it's more likely that the uh, a constitutional convention would seek to change the constitution in significant ways, but not to mm. replace it. And you know, I don't see any James Madisons out there coming, you know, with, with a new constitution in their pocket. Maybe there are. Uh, oh, I'm ready sure to they say will. People will come to this thing with preconceived ideas about what they want. They're not going to come with that. Sure, sure, sure. But I, I think most of the, I think any deliberations that occur will be based on the current constitution hmm. um, rather than a wholesale replacement of it. Okay, so no one's going to come and, and give a, a speech and advocate, advocate monarchy. Somebody might, but I don't <laughs> think that's going to happen. Um, yeah. But but so, so if you're going to, so, so let me put this to you, David. What would you want to see come out of such a convention in terms of things that are theoretically plausible theory. Yeah. So, so let's, let's, I mean, you could say, okay. yes, let's, let's have a completely new constitution based mm -hmm. on the, you know, the United Federation of planets, but I don't think that's going to happen. That would be great. <laughs> I understand. I mean, depending on which timeline you're talking about. Right. Um, 
I would like to see the House of Representatives or whatever replaces it be much larger. Um, you know, the current size of the House is doesn't allow for the kind of representative democracy that um, we want or need. Uh, you know, the, the districts are much too large. So I'd like to see a much bigger house. I'd like to see... Uh, oh, much bigger. I don't know. I haven't figured that part out yet. How about, how, you know, it could be, you could easily triple it and it would still be an effective body. Um, but I don't know. It, uh, I think that the house has not grown in proportion to the size of the country. And the idea originally is that people would be able to have access to their congressmen. And I think there's a lot of value to that idea. Um, and a congressman who knows them and their circumstances. Um, I would like to see something in the new thing that new, whatever it is that uh, addresses the role of money in politics. Um, I think they're the, the kinds of ways in which uh, money has, has, has hampered robust democracy, I think is, is problematic. Um, I'd have to think more about that. What would you want, Frank? I would. Um, it's funny. I, don't, I mean, the House is a problem, but that's not the it's not the abolish big problem the as far as I'm concerned. No, I wouldn't abolish the Senate because, again, I don't think that would happen. I think it is a federal system. And the point behind the Senate mm -hmm. is to represent the states. And so so I think the Senate conceptually is, is not a problem. I think the way it's evolved and the way its powers and practices have evolved is a problem. Uh, and clearly there's a problem when you've got Wyoming with half a million people having two senators and California with 40 million people having two senators. So I would introduce some measure of, um, uh, I, I would increase the size of the Senate dependent on population somehow. Now, not what, not, completely proportional because I think, you know, the smaller states would then, you know, object and probably block this. But I think California needs more than two senators. Equally, Florida and Texas need more than two senators. So so I would have more senator. I would actually expand the Senate in some way. And make the Senate make, more like the House. And make the Senate more like the House. But I would also... Uh, reform some of the Senate practices, which of course are not in the Constitution, that are real blocks to um, legislative change. So I would actually expand. Uh, ideally, I'd you know if I were starting from scratch, I'd abolish the Senate. Mm. But again, if, if if the kind of rules of this game are, it's you have to base it on the current Constitution and change it. I would expand the size of the Senate. Actually, I'm less bothered about the size of the of the the House actually than, than you are. I would also term limit. Um, Supreme Court justices to ten or fifteen years, or you know, pick 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 the pick the length of time. But I don't think life tenure for the judiciary mm -hmm. is is fit for purpose in a, in an age where people live much longer than they did in seventeen eighty seven. So I, I think and those are people two... want the job because means right. back in the you know eighteenth century nobody wanted that job. It was a lousy job. Well, it wasn't clear what the job was, was but yes, exactly. that's right. But but so those are two changes that I think would be doable. Um, that I that I'd want to see. I mean, again, in a, in a would you want a, would you want any kind of direct democracy? 
Oh, I'd, uh, well, I'd certainly abolish the, um, I'd also abolish the uh, electoral college. Yeah, okay, electoral college is gone. Okay, that's, that's yeah, a so, given. That's, so, that's I, a given. I mean, I would elect the president of the United States yes. by means of, uh, that, that, would be a, that would be direct democracy, it would be a okay. straight majority. Any other kinds of direct democracy? What do you have in mind? Well, I feel, you I feel like you're leading of, the witness. Well, no, no, I'm just, because you know, there are a variety of structures and state constitutions for, you know, recalling elected officials for referendum, for certain kinds of, of, of motions that are, depending on which state you're in, go directly to the voters instead. No, of, I would, actually, I wouldn't. I mean, I think there's a reason, you know, we elect people to, to do their jobs. And I would, I would, no, okay. I, I would, I would have, we would have direct democracy because we would still have elections every two years for the, for the House of Representatives. We, I would elect the president of the United States through a, a straight majority vote. I would abolish the electoral college. Um, but I don't think a lot of those features, I don't think we need uh, a lot of those features. I, I, I mean, I do think we're in an interesting constitutional moment. And again, I want to take the kind of political ideology out of this. It mm. seems to me that what one thing we're seeing is a return of power to the states um, and a kind of redressing the, the balance of power within the federal system. And, and that, you know, the, the, the original constitution and the history of the United States to some extent has always been about negotiating where kind of state and federal authority lie. That's one way to look at the constitution constitutional history of the United States. Mm. And it seems to me we're entering a period of uh, where the states are acquiring more power. Again, I want to take the issues out of it. This in and of itself, as a, as a principle, is not necessarily a bad thing. Arguably, this is the proponents of the Articles of Confederation back in the 1780s said it's more democratic to give people local power uh, and let the states decide what they want. Uh, that requires state constitutions to be a little more um, uh, uh, democratically accountable, I think. But but in and of itself, I don't see that as necessarily a bad thing. And the other crucial thing that's a real difference from times in the, from your period, mm -hmm. for example, or the antebellum period is when the states had a lot of authority. Is the federal government has kind of power when it comes to security and the security of the United States and, and law enforcement that's just unimaginable in previous times. So I don't, even though I see power going to the states now, to some extent, um, you know, the, the federal the federal government has kind of unthinkable power, um, well, power that would be incomprehensible to the framers of the Constitution, and it's not giving that up anytime soon. So I don't think we're going to go back to a kind of uh, system where the states have all the all the power. But I think we're in a period where power is kind of going from Washington to the states in, in uh, sometimes dangerous, but sometimes quite interesting ways. You mentioned state constitutions, and I think that's a, an interesting um, thing to consider because you know, most people don't think about state constitutions a lot, but they have, you know, an important role for how states are structured and, and governed. And there have been lots of state constitutional conventions. And I think, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of experience recently in national constitutional conventions. If you, you know, it's, it's been 1787 or 1861, depending on how legitimate you consider the Confederacy to be. Uh, but there have been tons and tons of state constitutional conventions. How many do you think there have been, Frank? I have no idea. But I think I, I think you're right to point out state constitutions because 
Americans have this kind of affection or attachment to the federal constitution, assuming it's in some cases they believe it is mm. kind of was handed down by God. It wasn't. Uh, <laughs> and that makes it unchangeable. Whereas at the state level, they've been willing to, to experiment and chop and change a lot. But I have, okay, so- uh, I would, I, I, I let, all right, so there are 50 states. I'll say there have been 110 state constitutional conventions, but I'm making that up. Okay. So there's at least 250. Okay. And, and, and I, and I give a fuzzy number because it depends on which ones you count. Sometimes they had a convention and didn't actually produce a document. Sometimes, you know, they had multiple sessions of things, but it's in the sort of the 250 range. Okay. All right. And, so I was and way off. That's okay. Uh, you know, the, the, and they fall into certain periods of time that I think are fascinating. Uh, there are a bunch in the 18th, well, there's obviously a bunch that are right during the revolution, right? Where states are, are, are rewriting their constitutions to, to reflect the fact that they're not um, you know, beholden to the king and, and establishing new structures of government. Right. And, and, there's some, and, and we've talked about those in the past and how interesting those are as, as articulations of what the revolution's about. There's a bunch more in the sort of Jacksonian period in which states are expanding uh, voting rights and office holding to people who, you know, previously been excluded from the white men who had been excluded from those. Uh, so there's a, a revamping of state constitutions then. There's a whole series of state constitutional conventions that happen in the South during the Civil War era. A bunch of states hold new conventions in 1861. They hold a bunch of new conventions in 1865. And some very interesting ones in 1868. There's Basically, all the states, southern states hold new state constitutions then. And these are a really, if you're looking at a place where states are radically reconsidering who they are and what they're about, look at those conventions, because they are times in which you've got white southerners, some white northerners, um, traditionally called carpetbaggers, but that's a derogatory term, um, and many African-Americans who are participating in politics you know, really for the first time, who are trying to craft, you know, a new vision of what these states are after slavery with Black citizenship and with Black involvement in politics. And these are fascinating documents in terms of how they distribute power, how they deal with questions about education and who has access to and a right to education, who has the right to vote and how are those going to be protected. Um, So there's a whole series of constitutional conventions then that are, are really extraordinary to look at. There's also one to the end of Reconstruction, in which many Southern states that at that point have been taken over by white supremacists try to undo what had been done in the previous Constitutional Convention. Um, and then there are a bunch during the Progressive Era, uh, in which you know, states are, are reconsidering sort of the structures of government, trying to create um, you know, mechanisms for, for recall and referendum and other kinds of, of ways of holding government accountable. Um, but there haven't been that many new state constitutions recently. And I think that's fascinating. But these were very, very common in the 19th century. You have a state constitution, 30 years later, you have a new one. Um, you know, the last real big new state constitution was about 40 years ago. There were, when there was one in Arkansas and then there was one in Rhode Island. Um, there hasn't been any since then. In some states, and I think this is fascinating, uh, and I, I didn't know this until I did some research for this episode. In some states, they have a, in their constitution, a ballot measure required every decade asking voters, 
if they want a new state constitution. So who's got that? That's interesting. It's an odd mixture of places. I think like Alaska, Hawaii, a um, bunch of states in the West, um, Oklahoma, I think. And, and, and the, the window about how often, sometimes it's every 10 years, sometimes it's every 20 years. Um, and historically, voters have said, no, we're fine with what we've got, we're good. But the fact that, that the idea of a new convention is constantly being, or at least periodically put in front of the voters, I think is an intriguing idea about you know, re-upping how power is restructured. Um, so does that suggest maybe, I mean, the re- I mean that, that's fascinating, David, but the, the relative, um, the absence of state constitution, state, new state constitutional conventions in, in the recent past, mm-hmm. or the, really for the past half century or so, mm-hmm. does that suggest that there might not be as much appetite for constitutional change at the federal level as we might see in some state legislatures where I suspect this movement, at least if this article in the times is mm. correct, is being driven by people who really want to do particular things. Yeah. Um, like Greg Abbott that, wants to have a new constitution. Right. But, but, but that maybe this is not as widespread and as popular as, as it seems. Well, one of the things though about state constitutions uh, is that, that often, actually amending them tends to be much easier. Yeah. And they're often, depending on states, and each state is its own particular weird animal, but, you know, the, the ability of voters to put forward, you know, referendum to amend the state constitutions, depending on what state you're in, that, that can be moderately easy, at least moderately easy compared to how difficult it is to, to modify the federal constitution. And so I think there are ways in which these constitutions are being constantly being reinvented to reflect the will of the people. Um, in a way the federal constitution hasn't been at least since the civil war era or maybe the progressive era. Um, you know, you find these new state constitutions at the same time, you do find major changes to the federal constitution. Right. So do you, well, I got, let me put it another way then. Do you think we're about to enter a new phase of, of constitutional change in the United States? Are we on the cusp of that? I think there's a lot of demand for it. Um, but I think what it ends up looking like is going to be 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 very messy. I think you know if there is a new constitutional convention, um, you know the pe- people are going to come with some very strong ideas about what they want, and they're, they're, I think the odds of people being on the same page about many of those questions are, um, you know, that's very unlikely. I think there's going to be some people who come in and say, "Look, we want stronger rights for guns," and some people are going to say, "No, we want to." abolish the Second Amendment, and, and, and there isn't a really a middle ground between those two things. One thing that does happen in state constitutional conventions is sometimes they have conventions and the convention meets and they yell at each other for you know 30 days and then they adjourn without coming to any conclusion. Um, because, you know, when you're dealing with the fundamental law of the land, you know, reaching consensus is very difficult. Well, and, and this is where 1787 and 88 is instructive because mm. uh, the, the the 55 men who got together in Philadelphia in secret and, and basically proposed to replace the Articles of Confederation with an entirely new structure recognized that it wouldn't have legitimacy unless it had some sort of popular support and mm. approval and formal popular approval. And so 
the mechanism they came up with that Congress accepted and endorsed was submitting it to the individual states for approval through ratify, ratification. But they stipulated, and this was mm. smart on their part, but also, um, well, I think it's defensible, that it should be they should be ratified by special ratifying conventions, not the state governments, not the state legislatures. The reason being, as we know, turkeys don't vote for Christmas, that you know, this constitution, as it was proposed, was going to take power away from the states. There's no way the state legislatures would necessarily agree with that. And so they stipulated that two thirds of the states would have to approve or uh, of the of the uh, would have to ratify the constitution, or three quarters rather, uh, ratify the constitution, and that um, special ratifying conventions should be held. And in the context of the time, it's the late 18th century. This is a pretty democratic process that is that the constitution was submitted to that gave it a measure of legitimacy mm. that was quite important. And so, anything that comes out that would come out of a prospective constitutional convention would have to. Um, receive some sort of uh, popular, this again was where I think a direct democratic, uh, you know, a referendum, a national mm -hmm. referendum on it would be necessary to ensure its legitimacy. Of course, you know, the losing side in such a referendum, especially if it, uh, depending on the elements of the, of the proposed constitution, uh, might well claim that the referendum was illegal or, or uh, you know, uh, illegitimate. Now, I mean, thinking about Gain ratification in nine of 13 states is, is one thing, you know, I think doing that today would be very different, you know, and when they had ratific the ratification conventions, you know, not all the states initially signed up for it. Right. But the country was fine with our Rhode Island and North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, well, yeah. but, but, but both of those states then later had a second convention and, and, and decided to join the club. Right? That's right. That's right. One could imagine, though, if you apply the similar process today, a bunch of states saying, actually, we're not joining the club, we're, we're joining a different club. Right. But if a bunch of states do that, if enough states do that, it's not ratified and doesn't take effect. OK, that's the whole point. Yeah, yeah, that's sure. the point. Right. Yeah. Um, what would happen? I so so if it were three quarters, what happens if three quarters of the states ratify the Constitution, but the quarter that don't? Mm. are geographically contiguous with each other, or some of them are, and they say, okay, we're not in this new thing. That's fine. It's de facto. It's not secession. It's, hey, you changed the club and we're not in the club anymore. Okay, That's an interesting, uh, yeah, that, that, I hadn't or, thought of that. That's an interesting question. Because that could happen, or they could be non-contiguous states, and the same thing could happen, or you could end up with, you know, uh, California and and, and you know, the West Coast and the East Coast being in one country and the middle of the country being something else entirely. There's all kinds of ways in which this could go. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just, I, you know, I had, an, I had a discussion with, with a British friend about this recently who, who confidently predicted that what is now the United States would be, you know, up to four countries in his lifetime. And I just think I don't believe that. Okay. Well, we will have to, to check back in, in 20 years after... Uh, after all, we'll see what happens. I, I think for all their political differences, mm. Americans are quite attached to the United States. I mean, they, they, they can't agree on what the United States is. 
yeah. <laughs> or should be, but they're quite attached to the concept of the United. Americans are very patriotic um, across the political spectrum, or many of them are. I, I'm not sure. I, I don't see the country just splitting apart as uh, as as readily as a lot of people do. I, the, I, the, I, the counterpoint I, to that is that many Confederates also saw themselves as very American and very patriotic. And they said, look, the rest of the country has left us and therefore we're doing our own thing. Yeah, well, first um, of all, they failed. And and, and, <laughs> and, with, yes. and with respect, David, not every, every argument doesn't always have to go back to the Civil War. No, clearly not. Just most of them. Um, <laughs> Because clearly they should all go back to the revolution. revolution exactly. Okay, that's fair enough. No, that's, yeah, it's one or the other. Those are the two choices. It's 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 a you know, in the mid nineteenth century, the, the the regional fault lines were so closely aligned hmm. to the fault lines over slavery. You know, we have the geography is vastly different now. It's vastly different now. I think anyway, uh, but. All right. Well, we will see in the whether uh, there is a Constitution Day again next year, uh, and if so, uh, you know whether there are you know how that looks. Right. Um, future is uncertain. Time time for last drops, Frank. What you got, David? I, I had a surprising encounter here in Charlottesville that I want to tell you about. This is my last drop, and and. Um, so I was out for dinner with, with, a, with a number of people who I see frequently when, when I'm here. Um, and one of them who I shan't name, but has a book forthcoming that I think is going to be really interesting. And I hope we'll discuss it in due course. And was telling I'm me about, historian. Okay. about their book. Well, it's not a, not oh. a professional, not an academic, not a professional historian, although it, that's unfair because this individual is a, is, has written a number of historical works. So, so they are a historian, but not affiliated, not in the academy. Um, but, but this, this person told me, he said, Hey, I just read your colleague's book. I said, Oh, which one? He said, David Silkenat. His environmental you history of slavery. Okay. And I I'd never heard of him. I never, never met him. Um, but anyway, he was full of praise for your book, David. And I wanted to pass kind. that along to you and pass that along um, in, in the, in, within earshot of our listeners. So, so this individual um, who has no institutional connection with either of us or institutional connection um, to the University of Virginia, for example, uh, but mentioned had, discovered your book in the course of their own research and was very, very um, impressed by it and wanted me oh. to pass that along to you. So I am doing that uh, in this public forum. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. That's very, I'm, 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 listeners, I am blushing right now. Um, well, that's very kind. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. So what's your last drop? David? Uh, well, I wanted to, to note uh, the, the passing of, of a great historian. I often find that there are lots of great historians who pass right at the start of academic years. I'm not quite sure what sense to make of that. But uh, uh, Gwendolyn Minlow Hall passed uh, a few weeks ago, and there's been some really great um, commemorations of her and her work and her life uh, since her passing. Uh, I just wanted to, to take a moment to, to note that because uh, for those of you who don't know, she was probably the most important historian of, of slavery in Louisiana um, that produced some really important scholarship, but also led a phenomenally interesting life herself in terms of, of civil rights work and trying to create social justice in, in Louisiana and around the country. So I just wanted to note her passing 
uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yep. Uh, yep. That's very, very sad. And, and it was a, it was a life well lived. A life sure. well I, lived I never you. met her. Did you? I, I did not have the, the pleasure of meeting her. I, my impression was that she was uh, not in great health the last few years of her life and was, was living with family in, in Mexico, I believe. But, oh, uh, right. Okay. Um, you know, just a really a, a giant of the field and uh, someone who has uh, had a tremendous impact uh, both in the Academy and beyond the Academy people, you know, uh, Jazz musicians, for instance, uh, in, in New Orleans, refer to her book as the Purple Book, uh, you know, because it's it a bright purple cover, but it, you know, it is as a book about the experience of, of, of African Americans in Louisiana in slavery. It's a really powerful uh, text and one that you know uh, crossed a lot of uh, bridges. So, I want to note her passing. Yeah, she rest in power. <laughs> exactly. Till next week, Frank. Cheers. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.